0: You're listening to the All Indie Writers Podcast with host Jennifer Mattern, helping serious freelancers, bloggers, and indie authors go pro. Hello and welcome. I'm Jen Mattern, your host of the All Indie Writers Podcast. Thank you for joining me today for episode number 14. You can find show notes and links to resources mentioned in this episode by visiting allindierwriters.com Slash /podcast/14. Slash In today's episode, we'll explore five common blogging myths and misunderstandings. Then I'll we'll tackle a community question about why freelance writers often don't discuss the research side of their work, and then I'll share a book recommendation for indie authors looking for book marketing tips to try. Let's get to it. Let's start by talking about blogging, specifically some common myths and misunderstandings. While I'm sure there is a never-ending supply of these, I narrowed it down to five. So first, let's talk about blog frequency. This is something I've covered on the podcast before, but it bears repeating. There is this common myth that you have to blog every day or nearly every day to have a successful blog. And sometimes that turns people off from blogging. It's something I hear a lot from authors, for example, they're worried about the time commitment involved in having to write blog posts on a regular basis. And you really shouldn't worry too much about that because no, you do not have to blog every day. You don't have to blog five times a week. You don't even have to blog three times a week. You don't even have to blog once a week, really, depending on what your goals are for your blog. Will an increased posting frequency help? In many cases, yes. But that doesn't mean your blog can't do its job and reach the goals that you've set for it without a high frequency of blog posts. For example, I have talked about the SEO benefits of having a blog on your professional freelance writer website and how just having updated content can help your site rank better for key terms and phrases that clients use when they're trying to find a freelancer like you. And in experimenting with my own site, I saw radical improvements by posting just once per month to that blog. One post per month. That is a far cry from daily posting. And the result was that I was ranking number two again for my main keyword phrase, which drives several well-qualified leads to me every month. So as you can see, you don't have to blog every day to see real benefits from having a blog. So I wanted to nip that one right off the bat. So hopefully some of you will stop worrying so much about the sheer amount of time that a blog can take. Now let's move on to another common myth and that is this idea that all blog posts have to be epic content of more than 2,000 words. Not true. Again, it's completely false. So don't feel like you have to write these long blog posts every day. Like I said, you don't need to do that. And they don't need to be that long. Certainly not all of them. Here are some of the problems with this. First of all, the statistics that are often cited by bloggers who make this claim are usually pretty outdated by web standards. And we're talking 2012, for example. Now, in three years, Google's algorithms have changed so many times. So just because something was ranking really well at a certain point in time, doesn't mean that's the best case scenario now, but more importantly everything you write should not be about search engine rankings. You need to give your readers what they want, and chances are pretty good that your readers don't have the time to read 2,000 plus words in every blog post you write, especially if you do choose to blog frequently. But let's go back to the issue of algorithms again. You know, this is often promoted as a way to improve your blog search engine rankings. But the truth is, just a few years back, it was common knowledge that shorter posts were the way to go. That was the quote-unquote right way to blog. Now, when algorithms changed and longer content started to perform better, People who had spent years focusing on short blog posts suddenly found themselves in a tough position. And the thing is, you don't know what's going to rank well tomorrow. (laughs) Nonetheless, a year from now or three years from now. And do you really want to put that much time into your blog only to have to go back and change years worth of content to adjust for algorithm changes. I don't. And think in terms of larger media sites, like a newspaper site or a magazine's website. There often, though not always, seems to be a little more stability there. And that's in part due to reputation. But it's because they're giving readers what they want. So people are sharing that content, bookmarking that content, subscribing, spreading the word for them. And that is what really is going to start helping your rankings, is building a regular readership who helps spread the word, who links to you, who shares your content on social media. And that can happen with different types of content. Again, think about magazines. Readers don't necessarily only want long features. You'll also find Departments that are shorter, and profiles, and interviews, and there are all different kinds of content in there. It's not just one thing. So it seems so silly to make your blog follow one strict standard. You can be flexible with your blog. Make your own blog a more stable site in search engines by giving readers a variety of things that they actually want from you know an epic tutorial to an interview with someone they respect to short tips that can help them out on a day-to-day basis. Give them that variety and not only do you keep your readers happy but your site, your blog, is going to be more stable through future algorithm changes because no matter what the length du jour is, you're covered. So no, not everything has to be epic content. Never buy into this, oh, it all has to be over X words. People have been saying that for years. It is complete nonsense. The number constantly changes. So don't get hung up on hitting a certain word count target with every post. Just focus on giving your readers what they want. Okay, let's move on to the third. This one is more of a misunderstanding than a myth, but it's one that bugs me personally a little bit when I see people talk about this. And that is when I see people tell bloggers that there is some big difference between a blog post and an article. Completely false. It just isn't true. A blog post is not a specific type or format of content. It isn't. It never has been. A blog is just a type of publishing platform that involves publishing your content chronologically. That's it. That's all it means. You can post any type of content you want as a blog post. That could be an opinion piece, it could be an expose, it could be a news story, it could be a feature article, an interview, a review, an infographic, Q&A's, photos, videos, listicles, and pretty much any other type of content you can think of. They can all be blog posts, including traditional long-form articles. There is no difference. Now, the reason that this one bothers me so much isn't because it affects your average blogger. It doesn't. When you own your own blog, you do whatever you want there. But when it comes to freelance bloggers, this is where it gets me. Because oftentimes, these freelance bloggers are told that their blog posts are not as valuable as an article. And that is complete and utter nonsense. Now one trend that we're seeing these days is that companies seem to want feature articles on their blogs. It tends to be longer content in this particular case and it might involve multiple interview subjects, things that you would expect if you were writing a magazine feature, for example. And what freelance bloggers are often told is that they could essentially write the same article as a magazine writer but they should, for some reason, be paid significantly less because it's just a blog, and supposedly the requirements aren't as strict. Well, that just isn't the case anymore. These days, you have blogs on magazine sites. You also have blogs taking more of an editorial approach from newspapers and magazines. There is a lot of crossover. So... You know, this one's for freelance bloggers. No, blog posts and articles are not different things. Articles, in terms of feature articles, are simply one type of content that you can use as a type of blog post. And if you're writing a feature article, no, you shouldn't necessarily be paid significantly less just because that article is going to appear on a blog. So think about everything that goes into that work and charge based on that as opposed to what you or your client is calling that project. Now let's move on to the fourth blogging myth. Now this one is a technical one and I see this frequently from brand new bloggers. They think that they can just set up a blog without knowing what they're doing now And that's okay because if they need to change things later structurally, it's a really easy fix. And the problem is that while, yes, it's an easy fix technically to change something like your permalink structure, which is how the URLs for your posts and pages look, there is so much room for things to go wrong. So if you're serious about blogging, You don't just want to rush in and set something up without really thinking about the structure of your content. It includes not only your permalink structure, but also your category structure on your blog. It's not just about the thought that you might want to reorganize your content later on your own blog, but let's say you want to switch blogging platforms. If you think that there is any chance that you might want to switch, for example, from Blogger to WordPress at some point in the future, you're going to want to make sure that you have a URL structure that is going to transfer pretty easily. You don't want to be in a position where every single link on your site basically changes. Now. This also comes into play when I meet new bloggers who want to start off on a free blog platform where your blog is hosted on a subdomain of a larger site like wordpress.com or blogspot.com. Again, you run into the potential issue of having to redirect things and you will lose some of your link juice and you could end up with a lot of dead links to your site. You could end up missing some of those redirects So look, here's what it comes down to. Don't just rush into blogging and take a sloppy approach to it in that setup phase. You want to get to know the organizational system of your blogging platform and really research your options to see what's going to work for you not only now, but as your blog grows in the future. Because any changes could end up being a huge headache later for you. Think about your blog strategically from the start, and you can avoid all of those problems later on. Now let's move on to the final blogging myth for this episode, and this is going to touch back on one of the recent episodes on this podcast where I talked about ad-supported content. A very common myth that I've heard is that it is always bad to try to monetize your blog early on, right away when you launch it. Now, there's the school of thought that blogs should never be monetized. That's just silly. Not all blogs have the same purpose. And if the purpose of your particular blog doesn't involve monetization, that's great, that's fine. But if you do wanna make money with your blog, then absolutely monetize it as soon as you can. And really, the only issue with monetizing from the start, well, there are two issues. The first is this idea that your readers are going to hate you if you put ads on your blog. And that just isn't true. Yes, nobody likes advertising, but they're used to seeing it. And whether you put the ads on your blog now or you put the ads on your blog later, they're likely to react the same way. So if you're planning to put ads on your site at some point anyway, go ahead and put them on. Now, the real concern is will those ads actually make you any money in the beginning when you don't really have much traffic? And the key here is choosing your monetization options carefully. So for example, you might not wanna use an ad network when your blog launches, If it relies on the number of clicks you get, or if it relies directly on the views or the impressions of that ad. In both of those cases, you'll make more money as you have more traffic. However, you can monetize your blog in other ways earlier on. For example, instead of working with an ad network that pays per impression, you might choose to promote affiliate deals where you're an affiliate of a company offering a product or service that happens to be relevant to your blog's readers. You don't have to have a lot of readers early on to still make a few bucks blogging. Are you gonna get rich when you don't have that many people there to take advantage of the affiliate links? No, of course not. But you might make enough to support that blog, or you might make enough to pay for a better design, or you might make enough to pay for someone to help you contribute content. Whatever it is, you might have enough money to reinvest in that blog and grow it in a way that you can earn even more through other avenues later. And it's not just affiliate ads. For example, you might launch your own ebook, or course, or have services tied to your blog, you can monetize your blog in any number of ways, and again, that's something I've covered in past episodes, which I'll link to in this episode's show notes at allindiewriters.com slash podcast 14. But in all of those cases where you're relying on individual sales and you're making more per action than you would when someone simply clicks on an advertisement, you don't necessarily need a lot of traffic to make enough income to make that worthwhile to you. If monetizing your blog, no matter how little it might seem, encourages you or motivates you to put more time and effort into that blog, then I say go for it. There's no good reason to avoid it just because somebody on some other blog says, oh, it's a bad idea and you should never monetize your blog from the beginning you know, it's just, it's silly. You know your readers, you know what they're gonna be able to tolerate, and you should have a good idea of what kinds of things will help you monetize your particular blog. If you think it's worthwhile to do so, even with few visitors early on, then of course you should do that. All right, let's move on from blogging now, and I'm gonna tackle a community question. This question came from Gina Alianiello, and Gina, I'm sorry if I pronounced your last name wrong. She and I were having a conversation as a result of a post on the blog recently. Gina basically wanted to know why more freelance writers don't publicly mention the research time and the prep time involved in their writing projects as a way to convey that extra value to clients. To help them realize that more goes into it, and that's why your rates are what they are. There are basically two ways of looking at this. And, you know, we're not talking about freelancers discussing research amongst themselves or factoring it into their rates. Of, of course, you'll factor that into your rates. But why isn't it mentioned on freelance writer websites, and how might you do that? I have a few colleagues who actually do mention this on their sites and I mentioned that to Gina and I said, you know, if you really feel like clients don't understand what's going into their projects, then go ahead and mention some of that information if you want to. For example, on your rates page, maybe you'll list an article rate and you'll say articles in this particular rate range involve background research, finding statistics and quotes, and two to three interviews, for example. So this way you emphasize some of those extras that are involved, not extras as far as we're concerned, but extras as far as a client is concerned sometimes. But I also wanted to caution Gina a little bit because there's a reason that many of us actually don't break down our rates like that on our professional sites. Once you give prospects that kind of information, you know, all the nitty-gritty little things that go into your project, some take it as an invitation to nitpick and try to talk your rates down. So, for example, if you say two to three interviews are included in a certain rate, well, you're going to have that one client who says, "Oh, well, well maybe I only want one interview, so I want a lower rate." Or if you say it involves a certain amount of research time, then maybe your client will send over a few links to articles that they want you to use as research material and tell you that they want a price cut because of that even if the articles they sent aren't really the sources you need or they aren't the best sources that you could have found on your own. So that's the big reason that I don't think you see more of it on professional sites when you see their rates. It often isn't necessary as long as the client knows that they're gonna get the end result. And if you convey value that the end result is going to give them, whether that's increased profits because of the sales letter you wrote, or media exposure from a press release you drafted, or more interaction and social media shares through your blogging, as long as that value is conveyed to them, most clients aren't going to care Remember that the real value is in the end result of what you're providing the client. It's not in how you get there. Okay, let's move on now to this episode's recommended resource. And this time it is a book that I'm recommending for indie authors. It's called Guerrilla Marketing for Writers, 100 Weapons for Selling Your Work from J. Conrad Levinson, Rick Frischman, and Michael Larson. Now this is actually an older book. It's significantly older than most books that indies will find that are actually targeted to them. And this one is not specifically for indie authors, but you can apply most, if not all of the tactics to your indie books. The great thing about the book is that it reminds you that book marketing isn't all about social media. Sometimes I think authors today get so tied to the instant gratification of the internet. You know, the marketing opportunities that are right there at your fingertips. That sometimes they forget that old school tactics still work brilliantly. So make them new again. Do these things that authors have been doing for decades, but most indie authors don't seem to be. You could stand out among them. For example, some of the ideas mentioned there that could, might work for you are radio campaigns, snail mail, and live events. So, you now, don't get me wrong, like I said, this is an older book, so some of the online information might be outdated, but it's really the offline tactics that are most valuable here. And because of how much those things are neglected these days, I think this is a great book to add to your shelf. I'll include a link to where you can get the book in the show notes at allindywriters.com slash podcast slash 14. And that's all I have for you today. Do you have follow-up questions to any of the topics discussed in this episode? Submit those or any other writing-related questions to be answered in a future episode through the contact form at allindywriters.com slash podcast by emailing me at Jen, that's J-E-N-N at allindiewriters.com or by leaving me a voicemail at 484-575-1345. You can find show notes and related links for this episode at allindiewriters.com/podcast/14. You can also access this podcast, audio blog posts, and related audio productions by visiting freelancetheater.com. You've been listening to the All Indie Writers Podcast with Jen Mattern, a freelance theater production. Freelance theater. It's all writers need for life's little episodes.